Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Tonight, I'm going to be introducing a special guest. It was interesting this morning. Debbie woke up at 1.30 in the morning and couldn't go back to sleep, so just knew it was time to pray. And so when I got up uh, a bit later after that, I was not up at 1.30, but when I got up a bit later, we were talking. We were just having coffee there, sitting in the dark and uh, talking. And uh, she said, she said to me, she said, you know, as I'm praying, I just feel like that you need a fresh touch from the Lord. Man, aren't you glad to have a spouse who cares about that, that says that? And I said, you know, I think you're right. She said, oh, I think we both do. And so we just, we, you know, asked the Lord to do that for us. And so then today, uh, as we, you know, had our day ahead of us, um, Dr. Joe Castleberry was bringing a friend of his, Russell B. Johnson, uh, from Pursuit Church uh, in Seattle to come. And um, so we were going to just visit a little bit later today, but we said, hey, why don't we have him do a Q&A with the students? So in our meeting, and the power of the Lord just fell. Uh, if you don't know anything about uh, Russell and his ministry, uh, he and his wife started Pursuit Church it nine years ago, and they started it in Seattle. Uh, he grew up in the in the Northwest, and they started it uh, in a building that had no running water, had broken windows, and had no heat. And he used his credit card to buy some of the basic things they needed, like a karaoke machine with a speaker, so he could, you know. So this is how they started uh, nine years ago. Today, that church probably has around 7,000 people that attend. It's a very fast-growing church in the Northwest, and it's a church that uh, God is using in an extraordinary way. In fact, I've, I've, from a distance, and especially through Dr. Joe Casselberry, followed uh, the revival that's happening there because uh, they're having meetings on Sunday night, having healings, having people filled with the Spirit, having really a revival atmosphere in Seattle, uh, of all places. And so it's so exciting. And so... Uh, when I heard him today, as and we visited later, I just thought, wow, it is so good to uh, just be around people who hunger after God and desire to see God do great things. And so he was, he was somebody I knew about at the start of the day, uh, and through the day, I've just developed with him a bond. I just am, am so excited about the future. But it is just a joy to be able to share with you the ministry of senior pastor Russell B. Johnson from the Pursuit Church. Come on! Let's give it up for Russell B. Johnson! <laughs> awesome. Hey, well, feel free to find a seat, man. It's such a privilege and an honor to be here this evening. I have heard rumors of that which is happening at a church in Springfield, Missouri named James River. And it is exciting to be here in person. The rumors were true. God is on the move and his enemies are being scattered and you're in the right place at the right time. 
worshiping the right God to see him do his best work both in and through your life. <laughs> now, I'm convinced that when the church gathers with expectation, God responds with impartation. And I can sense the expectation of this room tonight. And this idea that if we ask and if we seek and if we knock, that it would be true. He would open a door unto us. He would make ways where there seems to be no way. He would make highways low and, and low ways high and, and, and crooked ways straight because it's still true 2,000 years later that the mountains still melt like wax in the presence of our God. And there simply isn't one thing too hard that our God cannot accomplish. And it is still at the mighty name of Jesus that men are saved. People are translated out of darkness and into light. Chains are broken. Addictions are broken. People are born of water and of spirit. At the name of Jesus, cancer still bows. At the name of Jesus, diabetes still bows. At the name of Jesus, depression still bows. At the name of Jesus, the yoke of bondage is still broken. Demons come in one way. They flee seven ways. There is no name like the name of Jesus. Jesus. And we're here tonight to lift high the name of Jesus and in doing so experience the power and the benefit of his presence, knowing that the God who was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will in fact be faithful to us again. God has not run out of faithfulness. God has not run out of resource. God has not run out of revival of the wind and the flame that fell on Pentecost. I believe it is falling again in churches just like this all over the nation, friend. Our best days are not behind us. They are ahead of us. And God has saved his best for last. I, I sensed it in the room this evening. It, it, it took me back to the, the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 where the scripture records that in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I see the Lord high and lifted up. And, and the train of his robe fills the temple and, and cherubim and seraphim, they, they fly back and forth and, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who, who was and is and is to come. And in this moment, Isaiah has this realization. He says, I am unclean and, and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips, but if the coal of heaven would touch my life, then here am I, send me. And I love what it says in the King James. Isaiah says, I am undone by your presence. I am ruined by your presence. And I think God in this season is looking for a generation of people who will settle at nothing less than an unmitigated outpouring of his spirit in our hour. And friend, we have never needed it more than we need it today. The answer to the crisis of America will not be found in just another politician or another piece of legislation or another great nonprofit or another great initiative to be launched. We need an outpouring of God's spirit like we have never seen before and I would venture to say the next generation is worth it and I would venture to say over Springfield tonight give up your dead give up your prodigal give up your backslidden for the king of glory is here and who is this king of glory he is mighty and he is strong in battle so swing wide you ancient gates and open up you ancient doors and let the king of glory in.
and from Seattle to Springfield, Jesus is Lord. And the Holy Spirit is not intimidated by this region, and neither are we. I think so often we just allow the copious amounts of bad news to so infiltrate our spirits that if we were to be honest, we, we've become experts in what the enemy can do. And we've come, become relatively incompetent in the power of what God can do. But, 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 but I'm so convinced that one moment in the presence of God can change everything about you. And we need the thing that is most valuable and most precious and most life-giving to the, to the church to, to blow through the, the caverns of our, our sanctuaries. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of the miracle of Mark 5 where a man named Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is, is dying and, and she needs a miracle. And you're familiar with the story. And, and Jesus walks his way towards Jairus' house. And in, in the midst of it, a woman with the issue of blood presses through the crowd and grabs a hold of his garment and receives a miracle. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, no, everybody is touching you. And he says, no, there, there was a woman who had faith, who when she grabbed a hold of me, virtue came out. He eventually makes his way to the house of Jairus. And People are weeping and they're wailing and, and Jesus walks into the house and he says, there's no need to weep or, or, or to wail. She, she isn't dead. She, she's sleeping. And I, I feel like that is, that, is a, that is a present and prophetic word for the church of Jesus Christ in America. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. But friend, it is time to wake up. <laughs> And it's like Jesus tells his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, as he goes away to pray and he comes back and he finds them sleeping and, and he says, wake up, you got to pray with me. And he, and he goes away again and he prays and he comes back and he finds them sleeping and he challenges them with this question or with this thought. And he said, if you only knew the hour in which you lived, you would pray. <laughs> And what's so encouraging about being here this evening is there are apparently still thousands of people all across this great region who understand the hour in which they live. And if we ask, he will pour out in even greater measure. <laughs> the first time that word revive or revival is ever used in all of scripture is Genesis 45. The brothers of Joseph have sold him off into slavery. They haven't seen him for decades. And eventually a famine arises in the land and the brothers end up going to Egypt to seek grain in their time of need. And they know it not, but they are standing before the brother that they sold into slavery. And in that moment, Joseph gives them the famous rebuttal, what, what you intended for evil, God has used for my benefit. And he sends the brothers back home and their father Jacob is still alive, even though he is old. And as they're communicating to their father, Jacob, they, they say, you're, you're never going to believe this. And, and, and I don't even know if we can share with you all of the details for how this story has unfolded. But your son, Joseph, lives. And the Bible says that at the news of the life of his son that he thought was dead, the heart of Joseph's father, Jacob, was revived. And can I tell you, at just the rumor 
that there is another generation that is still hungry for the purposes and the plans of God and will settle at nothing less than an encounter with his presence. What it does is it causes the hearts of those who have come before us to leap with joy. I am convinced that the greatest way that we honor the generation of heroes who came before us is by running further than them. We owe it to their legacy to take the baton and say, God, do it in even greater measure in and through my life until you receive the reward of your suffering. God oftentimes plants the seeds of revival in the soils of crisis. Our world has faced global pandemics and, and economic uncertainty. It seems like we may be on the brink of another world war. Our country, in many ways, has never been more divided, friends. It is a perfect time for revival. For revival isn't just a good idea. It is the only hope for the church in America. The church was birthed at Pentecost. And for 2,000 years, it has survived war, famine, pestilence, persecution, trials, and hardship. No, revival isn't out with the old and in with the new. It's out with the old and in with the ancient. And when you've been born in the fire, the smoke simply does not satisfy. Oh friend, revival is simply God remembering what has always been true. A church birthed in fire must stay on fire. What began in the spirit must continue in the spirit. For we serve the same God who is pouring out his same spirit. And he is still looking for ordinary men and women fully surrendered to the upward call of God, which is still in Christ Jesus. And maybe the greatest thing that you offer God tonight is not your ability to preach. is not your ability to prophesy or sing or lead or teach or be the best of the best in any particular sphere that you may occupy. Maybe, just maybe, the greatest thing that you offer God this evening is the availability of your spirit. God, I'm, I'm just available. I'm not perfect. Probably not qualified. But if you're looking for a man or for a woman to stand in the gap, God, all be available. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad God factored in all my mistakes and still put an anointing and a calling that was irrevocable and without repentance on my life. And I would venture to say God knew every mistake that you was going to make. And he still found you worthy to carry the most precious commodity that there's ever been on this side of eternity. His indwelt spirit. For the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you and gives strength to your mortal body. And our victory is in Christ. For like Acts 17 says, in him we live and move. In Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption. In Ephesians 1 and 13, in him you were sealed. In Ephesians 2 and 22, in him you were built together. In Ephesians 3 and 12, in him we have boldness. Oh, it was G.K. Chesterton who said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. No, let us not shrink back from the difficult task that lies ahead, but instead with eager expectation. Let us march in the direction of outpouring and not stop until God rends the heavens and pours out a blessing that we can not contain. I think revival is the act of vindication. I think revival is God making up for lost time. I think revival is a reminder that even when we were faithless, God has been faithful. Revival is the ache that is in the heart of God. Revival is what Jesus, the chief intercessor of heaven, 
heaven intercedes for on our behalf day and night, but we have access to that throne room this evening to receive help in our time of need, and we are approaching the God of our forefathers tonight and saying we have tried every other thing. We have put trust and strength in man-made measures, but we are willing to forsake that tonight if you would turn your face towards us, if your ear would be attentive to our prayers, and you would do what you have so desired to do. At the University of Chicago Divinity School each year, they have what is called Baptist Day. It's when all the Baptists in the area were invited to the school for a fundraiser so that the Baptist dollars would keep coming in. And on this day, each one was to bring a sack lunch to be eaten outdoors in a grassy picnic area. Every Baptist day, the school would invite one of the greatest minds to lecture in the Theological Education Center. And one year, they invited a man by the name of Dr. Paul Tillage, and, and Dr. Tillage spoke for two and one-half hours, proving that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical misnomer. He quoted scholar after scholar, and, and book after book, he concluded that since there was no such thing as the historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church was groundless, emotional mumbo-jumbo, because it was based on a relationship with a risen Christ, who in fact never raised from the dead in any literal sense. He then asked to a stunned crowd if there were any questions. After about 30 seconds, an old black preacher with a head of short, cropped, woolly, white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. Dr. Tillage, I've got one question, he said as all eyes turned toward him. He reached into his sack lunch and he pulled out an apple and he began eating it and it went like this, Dr. Tillage, crunch, munch. <laughs> Uh, my, my, my question is a simple question, crunch, crunch. <laughs> now, I, I ain't never read them books that, that you read, crunch, munch, and, and I can't recite the scriptures in the original Greek, crunch, munch. I, I don't know nothing about those experts you quote, crunch, munch, crunch. <laughs> he finished the apple and said to Dr. Tillage, all I want to know is this apple I just ate. Was it bitter or was it sweet? Dr. Tillage paused for a moment and he answered in exemplary scholarly fashion. I cannot possibly answer that question for I haven't tasted your apple. The white haired preacher dropped the core of his apple into his crumpled paper bag, looked up at Dr. Tillage and said calmly, neither have you tasted my Jesus. The thousand plus in attendance could not contain themselves. The auditorium erupted with applause and cheers. Dr. Tillich thanked his audience and promptly left the platform never to return. And it would be my goal for you this evening, friend, that you would taste and see that the Lord is good so that your faith is not in the one Russell preaches. Your faith is not in the one James River teaches. Your faith is in the one that you have personally experienced and there is no going back. <laughs> Could 
because you are what the book says you are and you have what the book says you have. You've got the authority to pull down strongholds. You've got the authority to heal the sick. You've got the authority to drive out devils. You've got the authority to live righteous. You've got the authority to produce wealth. And today, the tomb of Christ is still the only tourist attraction that people travel from all around the world to line up and see what isn't there. And I've been to the tomb, and it's still empty. And I've been through the fire, and he's still faithful. And I've been in the valley, and he's still my savior. And I've been in the hospital, but he's still my healer. And I've been in need, but he's still the provider. Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Buddha is dead. Marx is dead. Stalin is dead. Darwin is dead. But Jesus is alive. There are 6,000 world religions, but there's only one empty tomb. And every other God is an idol who cannot see and cannot hear. But we serve the one true living God. I think every great movement starts with calling back to memory the stories of what God has done. Like you, I've been raised on the stories of revival. Like you, I've, I've heard of when God came close in, in the Jesus people movement. Like you, I've heard of the charismatic renewal. I've heard of the Azusa Street outpouring. I've heard of the great awakenings that once swept this nation. And like you, I am sensing in my spirit that God is getting ready to do it again. And could it be... Could it be that we are beginning to see what will be the last great outpouring prior to his return? Could it be that we are living in a generation that will not die, but instead see the one who will descend through clouds rolled back like a scroll, that with a great shout and the blast of a trumpet, Christ would descend and the dead in Christ would rise first and those who are alive would be caught up with him in the air and be with him forever. Could it be that the earth is groaning and the generations are crying and the nations are raging and God will once again remember his covenant and pour it out in a way that we cannot contain it? It's been a hundred years since Azusa Street. It's been 70 years since the latter rain outpouring. It's been 60 years since the charismatic renewal. It's been 50 years since the Jesus people movement. It's been 40 years since John Wimber and Vineyard. Isn't it time for an awakening of our own? Isn't time for God to do it again? Is there not still a cause for revival today? If he answered prayers back then, he'll answer them now. If he moved in power then, he'll move in power now. If he was the healer then, why can't that God heal today? Stories of what was are the seedbed for what God would desire to do next. Stories inspire us to dream for a better future. Stories remind us that we are not self-made, but stories from the past are not enough. We are asking God to do it again. 
James River isn't the first church in this city and it won't be the last. But make no mistake, we will not be silent in our hour of need. For we are asking God to give us a story of our own. It's why the prophet Haggai said the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. It's why the prophet Amos said in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and I will rebuild it as it used to be. It's why the prophet Isaiah said come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of God our, of the God of Jacob. It's why the prophet Zechariah said those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and it will take place if you completely obey his voice. Oh, friend, God is rebuilding his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe that what God is doing here in many ways is like a signpost to the nation. I really sense that. That what God is doing here, it's, it's, it's bigger than just the four walls of this church or the, the West Campus or the Joplin Campus. I, I sense that what God is beginning to birth here will serve as a prototype and a signpost for the nation and it will pull churches and congregations and movements and entire denominations into the whirlwind of awakening. And I know that the church has taken some lumps over the years. It's like every time you hear a story of a pastor in the media, it's usually not celebrating 40 years of faithfulness. <laughs> and I know that there's been hurt, and, and I, I'm not here tonight to try to gloss over the pain that, that people have experienced over the years in, in different religious traditions and congregations and, and things that they have seen. But could I just challenge you tonight? There's nobody who has been hurt more by church than Jesus, and he still shows up. And after all these years, I still love the church. And there is something about the corporate incarnational gathering of God's people. And I know people say, okay, come on, pastor. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Well, of course he is. That's theology 101. But can I tell you, when the local church gathers, the God who is everywhere decides to be somewhere. I want to share with you briefly this evening a sermon I've entitled The Four Things That Stop Revival. The Four Things That Stop Revival from John 4. A classic text that covers the story of Jesus interacting with a woman at a well. Many of you are familiar with it, but, but I believe that it's a prototypical text that outlines things that the enemy would attempt to try to sow as tares amongst the harvest to keep us distracted or <clears throat> focused on the wrong things or out of touch with that which God desires to do. You know, I, I think so often, Pastor John, you know, we use this phrase like waiting on the Lord. And I think more often than not for us, we're not waiting on him, he's waiting on us. Revival's God's idea. He wants it more than me and he wants it more than you. And my prayer for this church and for my church and for the churches of this nation that are hungry is God do hear what you have so desired to do in other places but found people unwilling. God do it here. God do it here. 
And in John 4, Jesus has an interaction centered around the concept, the topic, the idea of living water, which is the one thing that we are praying for. And I believe that it outlines four areas or parameters, things that the enemy would attempt to use to stop the well of revival. In John 4, starting in verse 3, it says, He left Judea and he departed again to Galilee, but he needed, he needed to go through Samaria. The Jewish leaders in the first century so despised the Samaritan people that even when it would make more sense to walk through Samaria to get to a neighboring village, they would walk around. In the first century, Samaria was known as a dry and a destitute place. It was populated by people who were ethnically half Jewish and half Gentile, thus creating a social and religious conflict that we read about. They weren't Jewish enough to be accepted by the rabbis, but they weren't Gentile enough to be accepted by the Romans. So instead of having a community they could attach to, they were a people caught between two cultures without a place to call home. And I would venture to say this evening that we still serve a Jesus who is drawn to the conflicted, dry, deserted places of this region with the express purpose of causing living water to flow again. Hear me, we don't blame the darkness for being dark. We don't blame lost people for being lost. We don't blame dead regions for being dead. But I am asking the question, how long before someone is brave enough to turn on the lights? And here's what I found. Some folks would have rather the lights stay off because as soon as you light a candle, it begs the question, why hasn't anybody done this sooner? Jesus needs to walk through this region and so do we. Jesus needs to walk through these cities filled with dry bones and dead people and so do we. Jesus needs to minister to the people caught between two cultures without a place to call home and so do we. But here's the good news. Jesus doesn't walk alone. The church walks with him. We aren't just walking with him. We are working alongside of him. We are co-ruling and co-reigning seated in heavenly places with the authority to conduct business on behalf of the king. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it was about 12 p.m. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Watch, give me a drink. Every encounter with God begins with him asking you the question, What do you have? It was the boy who had five loaves and two fishes. It was the widow who had two mites. It was the woman who only had a little bit of oil left in her jar. It was Moses who only had a staff. It was Gideon who only had a trumpet. And it was David who only had a slingshot. And so often our view of God is that if he wants to do something, he'll just act independently of us and cause it to happen regardless of our participation or involvement. Yet that's not the pattern of scripture. The pattern of scripture is that human actions in the natural trigger a supernatural response in the heavenlies. When Moses offered his staff, it became a tool of supernatural deliverance. When Gideon blew his trumpet, it became an instrument of warfare. When the widow gave two mites, it was the most generous offering Jesus had ever seen. When the boy gave his two low, his five loaves and two fishes, it became provision to feed a crowd of 5,000. See, acts of faith in the natural trigger a response in the spiritual. So the next time God asks you for what you have, respond with a yes in your heart because there's a miracle that's on the way. And the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew asked to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings. And Jesus answered and said to her, if you only knew, 
If you only knew the gift of God and who it was who says, do you give me a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Hear me. The first thing that will stop up a well of revival in your life is the identity crisis that comes from being married to the spirit of the age. Listen, a personality test may be able to tell you what you are like, but only God can tell you who you are. The world and the culture is officially losing its permission tonight to dictate the terms of your identity, for there is simply too much at stake to allow the enemy who is the father of lies to rob you of one more moment of abundant living. The enemy works overtime for you to come into agreement with his lie about your life. And the problem is this, his lies always come wrapped in a thin veneer of truth. Is it true that you might've made a mistake? Yes. Is it true that you are a mistake? No. By the way, that's why the enemy loves to wage warfare against the family unit. Because if the enemy can remove fathers, he can remove the necessary building block for identity in a child. We have an entire generation of orphans raising orphans, and the enemy couldn't love it more. I believe that one of the hallmarks of the next great move of God's spirit will be an explosion of family reconciliation, true spiritual fathering, and a restoration of God's identity in the hearts of those who feel left behind. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, they'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come back to this well to draw. See, I think the second thing that will stop up a well of revival in your own life will be the religion and the tradition of the way things used to be. See, everyone loves growth until it happens to them and forces them to change. God, I wanted you to send revival, but somebody was sitting in my seat when I showed up to Wednesday night. God, I wanted you to send a move of your spirit, but it didn't happen within the confines of my 48-minute attention span, and I've got Netflix to catch up on when I get back home. Watch what the woman says. Sir, you've got nothing to draw with. Essentially this. I've never seen it done this way before. I don't understand how this can even work. You know, I've been coming to this well every Sunday for the last 40 years, and this is different than anything that I've experienced. <laughs> the reality is, is that the way you draw them is the way that you keep them. And if we have to draw them with programs built by men instead of an encounter initiated by God. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to recreate the magic week after week instead of trusting that if the laborers build the house, their labor is in vain. But if God builds the house, it will be full. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me all the American church has been able to build without the Holy Spirit. Listen, friend, we have living water. 
And we're going to draw people with an outpouring of God's presence. We're going to draw them with the message of the supremacy of Christ. We're going to draw them with signs that make them wonder, miracles that cause them to be in awe of the Father. We're going to draw them with discipleship and community groups and serve teams and volunteerism. No, we are not smart enough to reach this city with great lingo or compelling programs. We're going to offer people the only thing that we know how to give them, the living water that flows from within, that causes lame to walk, blind to see, prison doors to open, and captives to be set free. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. You have five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband, and in that you have spoken truly. And the woman says to him, sir, <laughs> I perceive you are a prophet. Hear me tonight, friend, the third thing that will stop up a well of revival in your life is sin you refuse to recognize. Hear me, Jesus doesn't name her sin to shame her. He names her sin to free her. And Jesus is rightfully identifying the true source of idolatry in her life. I gotta have this relationship else I'm not a complete person. I gotta have this substance or my life won't be whole. I gotta have this level of recognition or my insecurities will eat me alive. How much money is too much money? Whatever amount replaces your trust in God with lesser things. How do I know when that relationship is toxic? Whenever it replaces my trust in God with lesser things. For Jesus cannot and will not share the throne of your heart with any other lesser gods. And Jesus, using prophetic discernment, asks the woman for what she does not have to reveal to her what she so desperately needs. Call your husband. I don't have one. You're correct. You've had five, and you still haven't found what you're looking for. And until the wound of identity is healed in your heart, you will live your life looking for love in all the wrong places. You know why marriage isn't the answer? Because being single is not the problem. And it's better to be single than to wish you were. I believe in marriage. Marriage is honorable amongst all men, but we have this entire generation that is trying to cram the God-filled void in their heart with things that look like God, but they are not God. Until God is enough, nothing else will be. Until his presence is enough, nothing else will be. You can get all the promotions and all the accolades, and your resume can be filled with every title given to you by man. You can have the best-looking wife and the best-behaved kids and the most money that you've ever had in your bank account. But until the living God occupies that void in your heart, you will be on an existential, lifelong search that will only end in crisis. <laughs> Let me end here. The woman continues in conversation. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you are neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The fourth thing that will stop up a well of revival in your life and in this church is the fight over worship. Which mountain are you going to worship on? 
Let me say it for your context. Which campus are you going to worship at? Which service are you going to attend? Which location are you going to preach live at? Which city is going to get more attention? Which person is going to get more recognition? Here is my desperate hope. That James River builds a church that revolves around the presence more than it revolves around a personality. That people say of the church, it don't even matter who's preaching this Sunday. It don't even matter who's leading worship this Sunday. I know God is going to show up in power and that's good enough for me. The hour is coming where the strength of the church will not be dependent on the location of the preacher, but instead will be represented by the passion of a people who will not be deterred from encountering the presence of an almighty God. Our passion is not for sale. It is not dependent on man. I will not wait for somebody else to make a decision to be revived myself. I am a walking, living, breathing ambassador from another reality and the geography of my feet is less important than the intentionality of my spirits. Revival is not coming. It's here. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. There's a well of living water that God has begun to unlock in this church and in this region. And I believe it will be unlike anything you have ever seen before. And I believe for many, the narrative of their lives will be, come meet a man who has told me all the things I have ever done and yet has loved me the same. I met Jesus at a church called James River and nothing will ever be the same again. What is happening here is so precious. It is so holy. It is not common. It is sacred and it is spiritual. And you've been invited to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to see him displayed in in glory and in splendor. Oh, friend, God's not boring. We are. There is so much more ahead of us. I believe what God began to unlock here in 2021 was the warm-up act for what he's about to do. And I believe that God, once more, he will shake the heavens and the earth. And he will do here what he has desired and longed for for so many years. And what a privilege to live in that which others have prayed for and labored for. And now you get the best seat in the house to see what God would do next. And can't you just, but for a moment tonight, hear the cheer of the great cloud of witnesses as they look in with eager expectation to what God in his infinite and sovereign wisdom would do in this hour. It is an hour of awakening for the church. It will turn the nation to God and you have the best seat in the house. 
to see what this God will do next. Come on, would you stand all over this room? I want to pray for you briefly and then invite you to the altar for a time of corporate prayer. I love to see even the altar filled with kids worshiping this evening. Yeah, we got a lot of older folks who go to pursuit and they grew up in the days where when you were trying to figure out what worship song to sing, it was open your hymnal to page 104. <laughs> and, and, and like, I, I know like the older folks in our church, like they don't like love the smoke machines and the LED walls and like the laser lights. And <laughs> but every time I look around my church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, I see 70 year olds and 80 year olds weeping in their seats because their grandkids are encountering Jesus at the altar. And I hope you sensed it in your heart tonight, seeing these kids up at the altar encountering Jesus. I mean, revival is incredible for us. But to see it take root so that the next generation can live, this is the greatest sacred privilege and honor that we could steward in this hour. It is worth every tear that you cry at this altar. It is worth every prayer that you offer God in this sanctuary. It's worth every moment of contending and giving and believing and striving for unity to see the next generation encounter the God who has been better than we deserve and kinder than we ever know and more faithful than we could ever consider. And that God is worthy of all worship and praise in every generation and in the church, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus is here, and that changes everything. Let me pray for you tonight. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you for those who are here at this campus this evening, those who are joining us online, those who are in Joplin at the North Campus, at the West Campus, people who are coming together with the express purpose of glorifying you. And God, I pray tonight in an unusual way that the wind of heaven would move through this place that it would remove every roadblock that has been set up between us and you, that it would clear the way for us to come into agreement with your kingdom coming and your will be, dunning, be being done at James River, even as it's being done in heaven. And God, tonight we confess in the midst of our brokenness and contriteness that we haven't got it right. We've leaned on our own understanding. We've trusted in lesser idols, but God today with hearts laid bare before you, we, we stand in reverence of the beauty of your holiness and we say, if you would draw near unto us, we would draw near unto you. God, in our lives tonight and across this region and across this sanctuary, may your spirit be poured out afresh and anew. We ask that you would do it for us. Would you just lay your hands on your heart all across this place at every campus? Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, would you awaken sleeping hearts tonight? I say over you, you're not dead. You might have been sleeping, but tonight you're waking up. Oh God, tonight, may there be wells of living water that flow from within us.